0: beginning in verse 6, here's what the Word of God has to say. And all of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, and yourself and your male, female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, uh, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle, your animals that, you are, that are in the land shall have its crops to eat. You are also to, to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, Seven times seven, so that you uh, have the the time of the seven sabbaths of years, namely forty nine years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fifteenth year and or the fiftieth year, and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property. And each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather it from its under-trimmed, its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops, you, you shall you shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend, or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Correspondingly to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgment so as to carry them out that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its, yield its produce so that you can eat your field and live securely in it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, You can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. I've been preaching a sermon series on resetting, and essentially we've been talking about spiritual disciplines, those things in our life that periodically we need to reset. We've talked about Resetting our time in God's Word. We've talked about resetting our prayer life. We've talked about resetting our worship life. But this morning we come to giving. And I want to start with a confession. And that is sermons on giving are uncomfortable for everybody. They are uncomfortable for the hearer because. Our giving is such an intimate testimony of who and what has true lordship in our lives. Giving, because it is not generally public knowledge, is often the very first area in your life that becomes disobedient when you begin to turn away from the Lord. But I want you to understand that preaching on giving is not just uncomfortable for the hearer, it's uncomfortable for the preacher as well. The fear of being labeled money-focused or only money-focused is a limiting fear for many who preach. The right desire not to be identified with the false teachers of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel movement calls many to limit how much they say about giving in faith. And yet the command to give tithes and offerings are found throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the new, And I believe if you are to walk in faithfulness before the Lord, you must be obedient in your giving. Thus, faithful preaching and faithful pastors must preach on giving. Our passage today is an interesting passage. It's not a direct passage about how much you should give, how often you should give. In fact, it's really command of God about what Israel was not to do rather than what they were to do. Every seven years was to be a year of Sabbath, and every seventh year, God commanded that his people were not to plant, they were not to prune the vines, they were not together, they were not to reap the land and the word there is fallow. The, the land was to completely be fallow or to rest. And God promised his people that if they would obey this command, that they, that he would provide for them abundance out of the previous year's crops. And then the passage that we read today is the year of Jubilee. And a few more things happen here. So in the year of Jubilee, it also was a year of Sabbath, but it was the seventh of the seventh. It was seventh of the seventh years, so the 49th, 50th year. And what was happened there? They also were not to reap. They were not to plant. They were not to prune. They were not to reap. They were not to gather. But and they were also to um, uh, to uh, to return any property that they had purchased from somebody else that back to the, the to the family that originally owned it. If any of the countrymen had uh, sold themselves because of poverty into servitude, they were to be released and set free. And it was to be considered a year of jubilee, a holy year. Now, here's a little Bible history for you. There is nowhere in Scripture that there is any reference at all that God's people ever kept this law. The only reference to this, and I'll I'll mention this later in the sermon, is where God brings about judgment because they didn't keep this law. Now, this passage is not a passage uh, specifically about tithing, about how much you ought to give, about how you ought to give. And I, I think that's important this morning because this passage is primary about a heart issue. Who is Lord of your life? Who, who do you recognize is sovereign over all things? And do you believe God is able to provide Obeying God's commandments puts you in these areas where you recognize Him as Lord, that you recognize Him as sovereign, and that you trust that He is able to provide. And I want us to see from this passage these three things about giving. Number one, we ought to give out of obedience. That's where it starts, dear friends. It is an issue of obedience. Will you obey the Lord? Giving begins, it flows out of a heart of obedience. Secondly, when we give, we're not giving out of what we own. We're frankly giving back to the owner of all things. And then lastly, I want to encourage you this morning to give in faith. I don't want to talk about what that means to give in faith. But let's begin with giving out of obedience. Dear friends, a right relationship with God begins. It starts with obedience. A right relationship with God begins with obedience. The hallmark of spiritual rebellion throughout every era in every generation has been a claim that one can be right with God without obeying God's commandments. You hear that today as loud as it's ever been proclaimed before. People will say, I can be right with God, even while they are publicly, willfully unconcerned with disobeying God's commandments. Dear friends, that is a sign of spiritual rebellion, not a sign of spiritual um, uh, faithfulness. God gave the law in the Old Testament to demonstrate his holiness and to demonst- and, to de- and the demand of holiness required of any who would be in his presence. It was, a, it was a, the Bible calls it a tutor. It teaches us how God is holy and we are not. And if we are to stand in the presence of God, it gave a demonstration of what that holiness would require of us. In the New Testament, Jesus covers those who believe in faith with his blood, making them holy. The way we are able to stand before God today is not because God forgot about our sin. It's not because God ignored our sin. It's because Jesus, who was perfect, covered our sin with his blood. Therefore, when we stand before a holy God, we do so in perfect righteousness, not on our own, but on account of Jesus and his blood alone. The gift of salvation and righteousness through Jesus means that no longer is our acceptance by God dependent upon our law-keeping. Dear friends, we are saved by grace alone, not by works, lest any man boast. That is where we start and finish today. But friends, being saved by grace does not mean that the commandments of God no longer apply. In faith, we obey Jesus not out of obligation, But out of love because we've been saved by grace we ought not to give less we ought to give more jesus says in john chapter 14 if you love me you will keep my commandments you cannot separate obedience to god's commands from a right relationship with god Dear friends, if you're living in disobedience to the commands of God, you are by definition not in a right relationship with God. Now, here's the bottom line. The most intimate area of obedience in our lives is giving. And as we talk this morning, you understand, I hope, that giving gets to the core of what we understand is ours. It gets to the core of who really rules our life. It gets to the core of who we understand is sovereign over all things. Therefore, giving is the most intimate area of obedience. And that's why we say a right relationship with God begins with obedience. And obedience to God will always include obedience in our giving. You can't separate that out. A right relationship with God begins with obedience. And obedience in our lives testifies to who is Lord of your life. I say that the most intimate area of obedience is giving because giving requires that we relinquish control over what we think is ours. At the heart of giving is the question of who is Lord of your life. Who is in charge? Who is in authority over your life and over your things? If you are the Lord of your life, then you have the right to control and direct every area of your life. If you're the Lord of your life, you determine what you do. If you're the Lord of your life, you determine where you go. If you're the Lord of your life, you determine what you give your attention to, what you give your effort to, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you do everything with your life. Because if you are the Lord of your life, you are the ultimate authority of everything that is you. But friends, if Jesus is Lord of your life, then he alone has the right to control and direct every area of your life. Did you hear me? if jesus is lord of your life he has the rightful authority to direct every area of your life what you do where you go what you give your attention and your effort to where you spend your time where you spend your money what you give your life to israel was god were god's people And they were under God's rule alone. Israel at this moment possessed the land that God had given them because God gave them the land. He put them in the land. He promised to prosper them in the land, to keep them in the land, to protect them in the land. Israel remained in the land because God sustained them in the land. And the testimony of who ruled their life would not be in what they said. It would be in who they obeyed. Somebody say amen to that. The testimony of who is Lord of your life is not in what you say. It is in who you obey. I don't want to stir the Kool-Aid too much here, but let's just be honest. There are some who have said with their lips, Jesus is Lord, and then with everything else in their life, they serve themselves. Dear friends, if Jesus is Lord of your life, then he rules every area of your life. Every area of your life. The issue here about the seventh year Sabbath, the 49th year Sabbath, it was about trusting the Lordship of Jesus, that he was uh, the Lordship of the Lord, that He was sovereign over all things. The same is true today, the true testimony of who is Lord of your life is in, whose commands you obey, and whose will you follow. And so when we begin a discussion of obedience, I, there is no other place to start then. I mean, excuse me, when we give a discussion of a giving. there is no other place to start other than obedience. We first give out of obedience. Secondly, this is where we get our heart right. We understand that we are giving back to the owner. Now, there are some things in this passage that I think are very important that we understand why God said what he was saying. The first is we enjoy the provisions of grace, not the rights of ownership. We enjoy the provisions of grace, not the rights of ownership. Here is the biblical view of everything, and that is that God owns everything. He owns it all. We have nothing that God has not given us. And let's just say some big things here. There is nothing that you possess that God did not give you. But I think it goes even further than the tangible things we possess. The body in which you dwell right now, you didn't make. God gave that to you. Somebody say amen. And I want you to do this with me. Everybody take a deep breath right now. As you breathe, your heart took that air and it pumped oxygen through your blood. And I want to tell you something, friends. The life that is in your body, you didn't make that. You didn't do that that life that is in your body right now is a gift of god we enjoy the provisions of god's grace not the rights of ownership so to remind israel that the land was a gift of uh, of grace god commanded that the land would not be permanently sold and we'll see this in this passage Now, in verse 23 of the same chapter, God says this, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. In Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, it says, Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Now, this was the reason for the command of the year of Jubilee concerning the returning of the land to to the family that God had given it to. So here's what what the command was. If I sold you a piece of my land, that selling of that land was only good until the next year of Jubilee. Because at the next year of Jubilee, that land came back to its original ownership. That's why the command was, listen, if, you are, if, you're, if, you're, if you're to sell it, if you're selling it like just a couple of years before the year of Jubilee, the sale price would be rather low. If you're selling it just after the year of Jubilee, so you've got another almost 49, 50 years, then the sale price would be rather high. And the reason for that is God was teaching them that the land was the possession of God, not them. The people do not have the right to sell what is not theirs. In fact, the key verse to understanding this is in verse, in verse 16. So look with me where it says there. In verse 16, it says, In the proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. In proportion to the fewness of years, you shall diminish its price. That, that, it's about if you're at year one, then if you've got one year to go before year Jubilee, cheap. If it's 48 more years, it's expensive. But here it is. Here's the key point. It says, for it is the number of crops he is selling to you. In other words, you're selling the years of produce, but you can't sell the land. Why can't they sell the land? Because they don't own the land. God owns the land. Friends, those who are disobedient in their giving are rejecting the rightful ownership of of God in their hearts they say it's mine and I'll keep it for myself dear Christian I believe that grace is greater than greed I believe that God's provision is better than man's prosperity I believe that being an heir of the king of kings is better than receiving an inheritance of temporary trinkets You and I own nothing, not even the breath in our lungs, the blood in our veins. We own nothing, but by grace we have access to every good thing our Father in heaven has provided for us. We enjoy the provisions of grace, not the rights of ownership, and so when we give, it is a testimony to the sovereignty, ownership of God over all things. If this command was read out of context, these verses were read out of context, without knowledge of who God is, uh, the, the reader might think it was a bit strange. Why would God want some random seventh year for the people not to do any work in the field? And why would God want the seventh year of the, the, seventh, of the seventh years for, God, for them not to do any work and all this property to go back and slaves to go back and all the rest? That seems a bit capricious and petty. But there was great purpose in God's commands. Not only did God want his people to recognize that he owned all that they possessed, but he also wanted to remind them that he was sovereign over everything. Now, if you attend church regularly, that word may sound familiar. We say it a lot God is sovereign. The word is typically used to describe a political power, usually of a monarch or of a nation. To be sovereign is to possess the ultimate authority and power. What we mean when we say that giving is a testimony to the sovereignty of God, we we are saying that we recognize that God has the rightful authority to demand and command everything. Listen to me carefully here. Too often Christians view giving as a good suggestion, as a practical solution to supporting the organization of the church, and as a decision that ultimately is under their own authority to make. But God gave this law not as a suggestion or a practical guide or a list of best practices. No, the sovereign God above all things gave this law as law to be obeyed. Now, remember I told you that there's no record in Scripture that this was ever obeyed? Nearly 500 years after this law was given, God allowed his people to be taken into captivity. God gave the prophets words to say to the people that they were going to go into captivity and that the captivity was to be understood as punishment of God because of their sin. And one of the reasons that God... Uh, uh, deter, one of the reasons God determined how long the captivity would be was based on how long they had disobeyed this commandment. I want you to listen to this passage out of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter, uh, chapter 26, verse 20 says, And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Uh, Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, desolation to keep Sabbath until 70 years were completed. What God was saying there is you refuse to obey this, but by my sovereign will, the land will get its rest either out of your obedience or in punishment, but the land will get its rest. Dear friends, giving is a testimony to whom you recognize as sovereign over your life and everything you possess. Now, here's what I would say to you as a pastor. God's sovereign whether you recognize it or not. But giving is a testimony that you recognize what is true. God is sovereign. Now, at the heart of this passage is a command to walk and live in faith before the Lord. And so I want to say to you today that whenever we talk about giving, we must say without a shame that we must give in faith. And I want to say to you three things about giving in faith. Number one, when we give in faith, it requires that you believe that God is able to meet your needs. At the heart of obedience to give is whether or not you believe that God is able to provide for your needs. Now, I know something to be true about everybody in this room. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you'd like to be just a little bit more. It doesn't matter how much money you made last week, it'd be nice if you had made just a little bit more. Over the last 20-something years of ministry, um, I've had really two experiences when it comes to testimonies about giving. I have heard every reason under the sun for why people cannot, will not give faithfully. From poverty to supporting uh, needy children, they, the excuses have been varied, but they all begin with this same sentiment. I cannot give because and then they fill in the blank but I've also witnessed and heard testimony a whole lot more often than those of those who had a testimony of giving faithfully and seeing God meet their needs rich and poor Well-known, obscure, people simply giving in faith and witnessing God meet their needs. The people who first received this law were a people totally dependent upon the previous year's harvest. So understand what's happening here. They would live off the year before's harvest that they had gathered in, meaning that one crop failure could mean starvation, It meant that if they did not plant, they did not harvest, they did not prune or gather, they very likely would have nothing to eat the following year. And so not to plant, not to gather, not to prune, not to work the field required not some academic, yes, I believe God can provide. It required real faith, trusting that God would indeed provide. Dear friends, when you give faithfully, it is a testimony that you believe God is able Secondly, I think this is teaching us that we must give, listen to me carefully here, we must give beyond our abundance. We must give beyond our abundance. Most of us, most of us give out of our abundance. What I mean by that is we give out of what we won't miss, we give out of the extra praise God that many of us have extra amen but, but that's not the sense here in this passage th- th- God didn't say listen whatever crop you're not going to use give that whatever field you don't need let that lay fallow no this was a total reality and it was a reality that was going to put them in total need before the lord and i think there's a testimony there a principle here that we are to give beyond our abundance the command of the seventh year sabbath for the land to remain fallow and the year of jubilee was was way beyond giving out of abundance To be obedient to this command would exhaust the extras, and it would put the people in total dependence on the Lord. And therefore, to be obedient to this command would require a true act of faith and a costly act of obedience. Dear Christian, certainly give out of your abundance. If God has blessed you greatly, then give greatly. But this must not be the only giving we do. We must trust the Lord and in faith give sacrificially beyond our abundance. And then here's the best part. If you have checked out, check back in because this is the best part right here. And that is that giving in faith provides opportunity to see the power of God. Verse 20 voices the question that would have been on the mind of everyone who was confronted with this command. So let's look at it together. In verse 20, the question is, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we don't sow or gather in our crops? That's a legitimate question, don't you think? I mean, these are practical people who understand how the world works. If we don't plant, we don't gather, we starve the next year. So what are we going to eat on the seventh year? God answers with a promise of power. Look in verse 21. God says, then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when it comes. In In other words, God says, listen, I will so bless the produce of the crop during the sixth year That you'll still be eating on it when the ninth year crop comes in. Now, here, listen to me, here is the important truth giving in faith provides the opportunity to personally witness the power of God. Here's what I know about many of us many of us believe God is able, we believe God is powerful. But if we were to be honest, we have never witnessed the power of God. And the reason why many of you have never witnessed the power of God, because you've never acted in faith that puts you in a dependent position on the Lord. The year of Jubilee, the year of Sabbath put God's people in a position where if God didn't provide, they were going to starve to death. And God uses that beautiful phrase. He says, I will will order my blessing. I will declare to creation to provide for you that on the ninth year when that harvest is coming in, you'll still be eating what the sixth year produced. And in so doing, every seven years, God's people, if they had obeyed this command, would have had a tangible living witness of the power of God. Think about how powerful that would have been. There would have been nobody in Israel older than seven years old that could not testify to the power of God. Every eight-year-old in Israel could say, our God is an amazing God. Let me tell you what he did last year. A 70-year-old could say, let me tell you what God has done ten times in my life. We have seen God be faithful to his word. And we've witnessed his power. We've witnessed his majesty. We've witnessed his authority over all things. Dear friends, few will ever witness the power of God because they will not obey in faith. It is only when you obey in faith that you can see God's power to provide and his faithfulness to every promise that he has made. Giving in faith provides opportunities to see the power of God to provide that you cannot and you will not witness any other way. I want us to be very clear this morning. Obedience in giving is not an accounting issue. Obedience in giving is a heart issue. If you're waiting until you can afford to be faithful in giving, you will never, ever get there. Because waiting till you can afford to give is, is giving out of your authority and now, not out of submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Throughout the ages, throughout the ages, the testimony is that when your heart gets right before the Lord, your giving gets right also. Faithful and sacrificial giving always follows a heart that is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. I had a friend of mine in Adele, he's much older than me. He had worked as a laborer all of his life for the richest man in town. Now that his boss owned a, a, a national com- a company and had made been very prosperous and done very well for himself financially. Now my friend had come to know Jesus as an adult and Uh, Toward the end of his life, had been living for the Lord for many years, but his boss had lived a very secular life um, and did not come to know Jesus until very late in his life. My friend loved to tell this story. He he said his boss one day called him into his executive president-CEO office. Big desk, leather chair, the whole shebang. He called my friend in there, and he said, Hey, I, I need to ask you a question. You go to church, don't you? My friend said, Yeah. The president of the company, the owner, the founder of the company said, do you, do you tithe? And my friend said, Yes, I do. And he said, His boss leaned back in that big, expensive leather chair, obviously pondering what he had just heard. And for a few moments, didn't say anything. And then looked at my friend and said, you know, I just don't think I could ever afford to tithe. My friend loved to tell that story because he would say, you know what? His one tithe would be more than my entire year's salary. How can he not afford to tithe? But he couldn't. And I don't think the man was lying because when he said he could not afford to tithe, you know what he was doing? He was doing accounting in his head according to the way of the world according to him as being lord of his things, according to him not trusting in the providence and sovereignty and provision of the lord you and i can understand what it meant when the man said he could not afford to give he didn't mean that he didn't have enough money you and i understand he had more than he needed But rather, he didn't understand the ability and the abundance of God's grace. He was looking at dollars and cents, but not at the mighty work of God. He was doing the accounting of costs, but not of the power of God. Dear friends, I believe where we must be this morning is we must first believe that God is able to pour out his abundant grace on us. We must believe that God is sufficiently able to meet every need that we have. And with a joyful heart, in faith, in obedience, trusting God to provide, obey, to give.